This is The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley. And I am Jan Fran. Happy Monday to you. Today we're going to go into depth on the Victorian COVID outbreak. Yeah, we're looking at uh, some not great numbers there in Victoria. We're going to break them down a little bit later in the show. It's the news we didn't want to be bringing you. No, sir. Yeah, I did say happy Monday. It's not such a happy Monday for Victorians, though, this morning, as the rest of the country continues to slowly ease coronavirus restrictions. Victoria is actually going in the opposite direction and tightening theirs back up. It is unacceptable that families anywhere in our state can, just because they want this to be over, pretend that it is. It is not over. That's the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews. They recorded 44 new cases over the weekend. Uh, They were in single figures at one stage, but they've been in double figures in Victoria for the last five days. And as you heard him mention there, a large proportion of the outbreaks are linked to households, two households in fact, 11 from a house in Keelor Downs and 11 in total from a Coburg household as well. And Victoria's also had to close five schools. Yeah, now the new reimposed restrictions, so they came into effect just hours ago. Uh, Victorians can have five guests in their home, not 20, as was previously the case. Also, the number of people who are allowed to gather outdoors has halved from 20 to 10. And there was a plan to allow more than 20 people into pubs and restaurants, but that plan is now being put on hold at least until July 12. Yeah, and it's leading other states like Queensland and WA to rethink when they'll reopen their borders. Here's the WA Premier, Mark McGowan. Well, obviously there's people who would like to see the border open, and I understand that, Uh, but what we're trying to do is keep people safe. So clearly what's happened in Victoria uh, means that we will take that into account in any decisions we'll make, Uh, but... um, Like everyone, I'm very worried about it. And Queensland has nominated the whole of Melbourne uh, and Geelong as a hotspot. So if you've been there and you come back to Queensland, you have to go into quarantine. And an Essendon AFL player has got COVID-19 as well, which has put a lot of question marks over how the AFL can move forward. Oh man, this is really not the news anyone wanted to hear, is it? Yeah, so in a moment, we're going to get way more into detail on that with an epidemiologist. Now, as we focus on our own COVID fight, particularly in Victoria, uh, what's happening overseas has also been a bit full-on. Things are looking pretty grim. The world reached a scary milestone over the weekend with 150,000 cases in a single day. Many people are understandably fed up with being at home. Countries are understandably eager to open up their societies and economies. But the virus is still spreading fast. Yeah, it seems to be the same message in Victoria as it is worldwide. Um, That was the head of the World Health Organisation there saying that the virus is still accelerating and that that figure is actually the highest single day total on record. So it doesn't look good. Um, Brazil passed the one million mark. The United Mm. States has two million. And I think we're probably going to see more developing countries also increase in the number of coronavirus infections. Now, we were expecting that global tally to spike even further from the Black Lives Matter rallies in the US, but it looks like for the most part that's been avoided. In Minneapolis, where the protests started 26 days ago, we're yet to see a big jump. Yeah, so they've tested 10,000 activists that attended that first event, and only 2% have returned a positive result. Now, Mm. Experts are putting a lot of that down to protesters wearing masks. Yeah, but some of the protests in other cities happened within the last two weeks, so we're not out of the woods yet. The full picture is still yet to be fully understood. But so far, so good from the protests, which were concerning a lot of people. 
And when you think about who could derail Donald Trump's presidential campaign, you don't necessarily think of TikTokers and K-poppers, but <laughs> that's who's claiming... Lo and behold. Yeah, that's who's claiming responsibility for ruining a Republican rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. New, a pretty new, magnificent uh, arena, as you probably have heard, uh, and we're getting exact numbers out, but we're either close to or over one million people wanting to go. Uh, We have a 22,000-seat arena, but I think we're going to also take the convention hall next door, and that's going to hold 40,000, so we'll have 22,000 plus 40,000. So a lot of talking up. So that was in the lead-up to this event. That was in the lead-up to this event, but it has transpired that the numbers were actually nothing like that. I think something like around 6,000 people turned up to the rally. Not a million. Um, Nowhere near a million. Nowhere near capacity of the uh, uh, 20,000-seater venue either. So basically, who's claimed responsibility for this uh, has been K-pop fans and TikTokers who've gone on social media and basically encouraged users to register for tickets with no intention of turning up. So they've inflated the numbers massively, and I guess that's what's led to Trump big-upping the event. Yeah, and... The other concerning thing, or not that that's concerning, that's just quite interesting and funny, really. But um, the other interesting thing out of that event was Trump's comments about COVID testing. Um, He's blamed the high numbers of COVID-19 cases in the US on the testing. When you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people, you're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. I mean, that makes total sense. I think if you didn't do a single test, you might not have a single case of COVID-19 in the States and it'd be eradicated. Huzzah! Yeah, that's that's a, an interesting way to go about it. Um, kind of scary, though. Yeah, it doesn't bode well. Like, the US has been in real trouble with COVID-19, so it's really important they do the testing. And the real reason for the cases is not the testing, it's the spread of the disease. One hundred and sixteen. That is the number of coronavirus cases diagnosed in the last week in the state of Victoria. That is three and a half times the number of cases that were recorded the week before that. In the past uh, week, we've seen 116 cases diagnosed in Victoria, up from 35. So it is clear that the numbers have increased in Victoria and those numbers uh, are of concern. Yeah, concerning for Victorians and the rest of the country, that was Nick Coatsworth, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer in Victoria. To put Victoria's 44 cases over the weekend in a national perspective... Uh, In New South Wales, there were just six. WA, there was one. uh, Zero cases in the rest of the states and territories. Um, In fact, South Australia, TAS and NT haven't had a single case in weeks. Yeah. So where is the spike coming from exactly? Because there was a Black Lives Matter protest that happened just over two weeks ago now uh, that authorities were concerned might cause a spike in cases. But that doesn't appear to have happened. Health officials say there have only been three cases linked to the protests and actually... Um, The problem is families not following the rules. We have had uh, many stories, numerous stories, of families that have uh, given it to each other and have then transmitted the virus to other families who in turn have passed it on to a third group. That was Victoria's Premier Dan Andrews there. Now, Victoria's also extended its state of emergency. It was supposed to expire yesterday, but alas, no, it has been extended for another four more weeks, which will mean added police patrols. And if you do get caught breaking social distancing rules, you're probably in for a fine of 
around $1,600 for an individual and $10,000 for businesses. Yeah, so are the Victorian authorities handling this right? Are they going too far? Are they doing enough? Um, We're going to ask Catherine Bennett those questions and and a whole lot more about this recent outbreak. She's a professor of epidemiology at Deakin University. Dr. Bennett, thanks so much for joining us. What can you tell us about these outbreaks, particularly the two clusters around the households in Keelor Downs and Coburg? It's it's a real worry, actually, because it's not only um, a rise in the community transmission, which is what we're really worried about. It's not the imported cases that um, give rise for concern. It's really when we see this spread at the local level. And these two clusters tell us how quickly you can get quite large numbers of cases in, you know, through local household transmission, um, multiple households meeting together, spreading the virus so effectively. That's actually how COVID likes to, or the virus likes to spread through community. It's sort of hitting vulnerable clusters and then you get a large number of cases. And where you have these multiple households mixing, um, you've got a big job in doing all the contact tracing. And then unfortunately, we're finding so many positives in these clusters. And so when a child takes her to school or, you know, parents visit the grandparents or all those connections really um, pose a threat to the government's ability to be able to control these outbreaks. And we're seeing the rise in numbers now as a result. So do you think that uh, Victoria's Premier has done the right thing here by winding back restrictions the way that he has? We always knew that it was going to be a bit of an experiment. And the wise staged approach has been one that allowed us to determine the impacts before the next step. Um, it, it really took that full couple of weeks to see where we were heading. And um, so I think they've done absolutely the right thing to revise those um, plans to ease restrictions as of today. And the other thing I like actually about their approach is that they are looking in detail at how this transmission is occurring. So really trying to understand where our weak points are mm. and that's the focus of the restrictions. And I think that's that's a, the right way to do it, to actually be targeting our interventions exactly um, in the most effective ways against these particular viruses or the way this virus actually moves through, yeah, through so, households. So given that the two big clusters have come from households, is, is that where the, the focus is, the way people interact in households, that come down to social distancing rather than, say, shutdowns of, of big events like protests, for example? Yeah. Look, I mean, the government doesn't think the protests have really contributed to this. Uh, there's only been a few cases, you know, found where people at the protests found positive and the government doesn't seem to think that um, the protest itself uh, was an event that, that, you know, generated those cases. I think we're still waiting to see that. You know, we've probably still got another week where cases might emerge and and I'm also concerned that people who are at the protests might not choose to get tested even if they have some symptoms um, and that, that would be problematic. So that's, that's sort of an aside. Mm. Um, so you're expecting but, actually in the next week potentially to hear more people infected with COVID-19 who'd been to the protest? Well, I don't know that we will see it, but I think we've got to give it another week mm. to see if we will find that. So 
you know, I'm, I really am hoping that people that went to the protest will get tested if they if they have any symptoms at all, and then we will know whether that might also be contributing to these unrelated sporadic cases that, mm. that we're seeing. But the ones they're finding at the moment really are linked um, to these households, and that's that is the focus of the current tightening of restrictions. So pulling those public or private events back um, from, you know, 20 people to five people or, you know, that, that's what they're trying to do to, to stop that, um, yeah. those large events that can actually just, you know, cause this to take off so quickly in a local area. I imagine in a lot of those, those family events, there's a lot of cuddling going on. Do you think that might be, you know, the, the sort of, I guess, activities we can narrow down on as we learn more about how this disease spreads, like things as simple as that? Yeah, look, absolutely. Across households, people should think of anyone outside their own household as potentially positive. And these unrelated cases that we are seeing reported each day tell us the virus is out there. It's still unlikely that the next person you meet will be positive, but at the same time, we know it's a real possibility. And that includes families, extended family across households. So I do think keeping distance, particularly um, from people who, who might not only be more susceptible to catching the virus, but also having serious illness from it. Mm. I think we really have to be mindful of that. How does one police this stuff? Because it's happening behind closed doors. It's happening among families who are seeing each other. Um, is it really down to the individual here or is this something that the state can intervene in? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, I think what we're going to see is there will be more policing, particularly in those hotspot areas. They're not encouraging people to dob people in, but I think that we saw that happen early on in the um, tight restriction phase, and I think that would continue to happen. If people notice that a household in the area had a lot of people turning up and it didn't look like it was complying with these new tighter restrictions, then, um, then I think the police will be informed um, and and there will be follow-up. So I guess that's the key here because it's still operating in clusters and what we're, we've seen is clusters in particular areas, there will be more intensive follow-up and probably more scrutiny even within those suburbs um, that might you know, help contain this so that it, we don't have to rely on everyone being good, that there is a bit of checking going on as well. Mm. Catherine, we seem like we've learnt... Um a lot about the virus. Um, we've worked out ways to calibrate our response and respond to specific outbreaks rather than just do sort of blanket lockdowns. Uh, we also have a, a tracing app. Um, we've also increased our testing capacity massively. So given all of that, do you feel like we will be able to get on top of this little second wave we're seeing in Victoria? Or do you fear this is the start of something really scary? Oh, look, I've been using the word tipping point for a few days now. Um, I do think we're at a tipping point. My concern has always been those cases that are out there that aren't visible to to um, the health department and, and to all of us. And, and that does come down to testing. We've actually pulled back a bit on our testing. We don't have as many testing sites. And we're also focusing on symptomatic people still. Um, so there's, there's the potential that there's still more out there that we're not seeing and that will only get picked up over time as we keep doing the routine testing. So I do think the other key part to this is um, more testing in those hotspot areas just to 
make sure that if you randomly sample the population in those areas that we've we've got a good understanding of how many people might have active you know infections even if they're not symptomatic so i think that's an important part of it so that we're we're not flying blind if you like mm. i do think um, a lot of these cases 50% of them over the last week have resulted from the government follow up of identified cases so this is the contact tracing it's showing us that there are quite a few of those contacts that are positive, but it's also showing us that, you know, that contact tracing is working and we're identifying those people and hopefully before they've had a chance to pass it on to the next group of people that they're, you know, circulating with. So if those people are in isolation and that isolation is, you know, working, then then we could still be on top of it. It's stretching the health department, but we're at that point where as long as we can get to the edge of those clusters and stop those people spreading it further we might contain this if anything's rumbling away and it's invisible to the health department people aren't getting tested even with symptoms for example then those clusters could be more advanced by the time the health department knows about it and then that's when you're really at risk of this taking off very quickly that's that's to me when you're really looking at the potential for a second wave. So that was Catherine Bennett. She's an epidemiologist at Deakin University, sounding quite concerned about what we're witnessing, Jan. Yeah, and I do wonder what this will do to the morale of Victorians. I know when the restrictions were lifted here in New South Wales, I felt a lot better about it. And I think if they were to be reimposed, I I would struggle with that a little bit. So I wonder what that does to people's sort of psyche. I think it'll help people if the reactions are quite targeted and specific Mm. and people have faith that they're not doing, you know, more than is necessary to control these outbreaks. Um, it be interesting to see what this does for the border debate between states, which was already pretty wild last <laughs> yeah. week between South Australia and well, WA. South Australia is definitely not going to let any Victorians in now, that's Ever. for sure. <laughs> uh, and school holidays coming up, which is really concerning as well. All right, that is it for today's briefing. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about a group of Western Australians who want to secede from the rest of the country and they're getting more and more reasons to do it. It's a wax it, Tom. I'll wax it. All right, we'll speak to you tomorrow. A podcast one production.